people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules What. My name is Alex, and I am today joined by a new, I guess, temporary, semi-temporary. Let's see how it goes. Guest host, um, Solan, who was on. Uh, who was on the podcast previously about um, anti-fascist sports culture and the work of Julius Deutsch, which was very well received, I have to say. Um, welcome, Solan. Thank you very much. And yeah, thank you for the, um, what do they call it, like the work placement opportunity to fill in as co-host for a bit. Yeah. Um, let's see how it goes. I'll uh, I'll reserve, tell you what, I'll reserve judgment at the end of recording and then I'll I'll give you a like a star rating out of out of five. How yeah, does that sound? That seems reasonable. I assume that's how these things usually go with podcast co-host auditions. Yes, yes. And I'll include it in the episode so everyone knows how well or badly you actually did. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Alex. No worries. Um, yeah, just to quickly say, if you want to support us, you can follow our Twitter or Instagram at 12 rules for what or you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash 12 rules for what um, Yeah, you should do that. Um, we're going to be making lots more content in the near future, so get on the train while you can. Um, yeah, okay. So for this episode, we're going to do a kind of react and analysis of what went down on uh, the eleventh of Saturday, the eleventh of November, which in the UK and across a lot of the world is Armistice Day, um, which um, commemorates the end of the First World War and has turned into a more general. Um, celebration of of the armed forces in various countries and inevitably kind of a national nationalist uh, kind of hand-wringing and crying and flag-waving ceremony which obviously as proper radicals we completely disdain but people do like it in this country and around Europe and America um yeah, I guess you you were. I mean, it's not revealing too much, but you were out the country for this whole shenanigans. So you went around, um, but we're just going to go through, talk about some of the far right stuff, and then give our give our thoughts about that. Yes, uh, uh, that sounds good. Um, do you want to maybe kick off by just a, an account of what happened on the day? Yeah, so let's let's run through it a little bit, and then we can have a little conversation about it. Mm. Um, so. I suppose you can't really talk about the day itself and what happened without setting it in the context of the week before. Um, so in the weeks, in the week leading up to the march, you know, this was a pre-planned march. It's happened. They've happened on these pro-Palestine marches have happened. Um, you know, every week on a Saturday, uh, growing numbers, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of London, and this is pre-planned. And it just so happened that Armistice Day falls on a Saturday this year, and in the in the, in the lead-up, the Prime Minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, came out with a statement in which he called uh, the march, that the march was happening at all, it was disrespectful, and he called for it, basically implied that he wanted it to be banned by the police. Um, and in the wake of that, there was a bunch of like Tory cabinet ministers and MPs who were basically asking the organisers of the march, the Palestine Solidarity campaign, to, um, you know, basically cancel ban the march cancel the march self ban the march um and which obviously the the campaign refused to do um there was Suella Breverman who is now the former home secretary um took things much much farther 
and in an article that eventually led to her sacking, described the uh, March as a hate mob, um, which is outrageous, obviously, and basically called into question the operational independence of the police um, by saying that they were biased, that they didn't treat the far right and the far left in the same way, or the far right and the pro-Palestine Marxists in the same way, that they were very hard on football fans, which certain people who we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode um, took as a kind of tacit support, you know, tacit approval of their of what they were going to do. And, you know, the Metropolitan Police itself, although deciding not to ban the march, judging that it didn't meet the threshold, which is it needs to have the serious prospect of violent disorder for them to consider banning a march. The last time they did was, in fact, um, with the EDL back in the day. We're going to talk a bit about them in a little bit. Um, but they did release a statement after meeting with the organisers of the march, uh, like I said, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, in which they publicly implored the uh, organisers to cancel the march, which, again, to their credit, they refused to do. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a bit of a build, that's a bit of the build-up. Um, it, it just, I think, it, for me, it just goes to show, like, there is a Conservative Party in this country which is really got one kind of feather in their cap right now, which is to stoke the kind of culture war, um, the kind of nationalist sentiment in this country in order to try and eke out some kind of victory um, in the upcoming election, which is happening in just under a year's time. Um, And this is kind of like quite an obvious play. Like there's always been a kind of like a, contempt of the pro-Palestine marches. There's uh, um, on the part of the the Conservative Party, especially in the government. And this, I think, was just a play towards that, really. Um, On the day itself, um, the march was between 300 to 800,000 people, depending on whose estimates you take. Um, There were very, very few um incidents that were like there wasn't there was not widespread disorder on the part of the pro-palestine marches let's put it that way there was about 10 incidents which could could be considered hate crimes um which have been posted on social media and the police have like asked for people to come forward and that involves various kind of um things that are like anti-semitic banners um some idiots were wearing hamas headbands um, which is obviously a very silly thing to do. And there was a breakaway group that were stopped and searched en masse, about 150, uh, who had fireworks on them, but they weren't uh, arrested for that. Um, and there was a couple of other arrests for like possession of a firework, um, you know, Section 5, assault on an emergency worker. But considering the mark was at a minimum 300,000 people, ten, the maximum of 10 arrests is actually... Um, you know, surprisingly, like surprisingly few arrests. Let's put it that way. Um, the Observer reporter Mark Townsend, who was on the march, basically characterised it as everyone on their best behaviour, very calm, very controlled. Um, the demo it was made up largely of young women. He said, like that's the dominant person on the on the march was a woman in her twenties, and. What confrontation there was with the far right involved, he described like nothing more than kind of puffing up 
people puffing up their chest to the far right in a defensive way, but no no moves to uh, to get towards them. That um, you know stands in sharp contrast with with the other side, the counter protesters, as as the papers ended up calling them. The way this came together is quite fractious, and we're still trying to piece together how this group of people like mobilized themselves. Um, on the day, it was about 1,000 to 1,500 football lads, um, football kind of supporters and, and their hangers-on um, gathered at Embankment. Um, they marched to the Cenotaph. They fought with police to get to the Cenotaph. And they then held like kind of quite a bizarre sudden two-minute silence at 11 o'clock exactly and then carried on their way, um, rioting and fighting through various locations in central London, trying to get to the pro-Palestine march, and et cetera, et cetera. Like, they were kind of well up for a fight, and and in the end, 150 of their number, which is a very significant proportion, were arrested for various offences. Um, and, you know, I guess in the aftermath of of this whole day, uh, which, you know, it's usually quite a kind of solemn, um, contemplative day, national day of, of remembrance, as it is, uh, turned into quite a chaotic occasion um, and quite cynically, um, the right-wing press in this country and indeed the same Prime Minister and the same Home Secretary who called on and instigated and stoked the tensions um, which set the tone um, for this for this disorder to take place, then equated the both both sides and said, you know, they condemned protesters and counter protesters. Um, they kind of buried the lead on where all arrests were coming from. Um, they equated the very very minimal kind of offences, criminal offences that that you know what took place on the on the pro Palestine march with the mass disorder and the consistent kind of loutish behaviour on the part of, of the football lads um, um, to make this kind of an equivalent thing. Then the sun said all extremists are to blame, so did the Telegraph, etc. Um, and that's basically where we stand right now. Looking forward, I think in terms of criminal stuff, uh, the, the police and the state have kind of long memories of this kind of thing. And London is also the most surveilled, the most CCTV'd area in the entire world, essentially. Um, so they will have no problem in going back through footage, trying to find more people to arrest and detain. And, you know, there's very specific people they want to find, um, you know, really obvious uh, racially motivated offences and intimidation that were filmed and put on social media. Some of those people who committed them have already been arrested. Uh, there's a, a very poor, unfortunate soul who um, stole a police officer's riot helmet and the, the Met have put his face up on their Twitter and said, do you know this man? Um, obviously, we have critical support for someone who steals uh, riot cops' helmets, but that's by the by. Um, and we can, I think, expect to see, at least in the short time, a resurgence in this kind of latent... Uh, reactionary far-right movement that we've seen you know, throughout the 2010s. Um, and I think it will be good, once we move on to the more analysis part, to have a little discussion about that history and, and what it means going forward for 
for anti-fascists and for and for supporters of those who are acting in solidarity with Palestine and are attending the demonstrations and going on actions. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think there's a couple of things to to really sort of focus on in any analysis of these events. And I mean, one is um, I think in terms of the police response um, to these counter the these so called counter protesters, and I think that's an important framing on the part of the press because it does, like you say, bury the lead a little bit about who's doing what and who's responsible for what. But the police response here is also, of course, in the context of um, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, publishing this letter accusing the Metropolitan Police of going woke um, and dealing more harshly with uh, right-wing protesters, um, as well as making a sort of weird and hard to understand uh, analogy to Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty funny, really. Yeah, you had a lot of politicians in 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 the north of Ireland, like saying, "What, whoa, 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 what are you doing?" A lot of loyalist guys be like, "Are you are you equating us with terrorism? What, what would we, you know, that kind of thing?" So. Yeah, it was. I mean, I guess, and that sort of speaks to the point. I guess to what extent does it? Can we see this as, on the one hand, indicative of some kind of splits or tensions within the government, within the the right more broadly? Um, and at the same time, to what extent should we be thinking about the potentially worrying precedents for this kind of disorder in the context of protest law and protest permits more generally as we know usually as much as it there can be you know some satisfaction to seeing the the far right repressed by the police but we know that like when push comes to shove any expansion of police powers um or kind of greater leeway in policing political expression tends to be worse for the left than the right in the longer run. Do you think the events are likely to lead to harsher policing of protests in future? Do you think that the head of the Met is going to be facing, you know, censure for this decision and that the Metropolitan Police will be more careful in future about permitting protests? Um, I think um, we saw kind of, we haven't really seen the effects. There's been some new protest legislation that's been brought in, which I covered on a previous episode. Um, and we haven't really seen the full effects of that come into force, especially in regard to like sentences and how the courts are going to deal with these kind of new crimes and new new kind of laws that have been brought in. We haven't seen have the chance to fully see that. But I mean, I maybe I should have mentioned it in the summary, but also um, the police themselves impose a number of conditions on the day itself, which were biased against the left or against the pro-Palestine demonstrations they had they had they instituted an exclusion zone around the cenotaph uh, you know a big exclusion zone um in which the pro palestine any pro palestine demonstrations were completely banned and you would be arrested if you protested there and uh, they let the far right demonstration of course were were exempt from this exclusion zone in the words of the assistant commissioner who was in charge on the day, he basically said, well, these guys are here to defend the cenotaph and not here to disrupt things, and so we will let them through. There was also a number of Section 14 orders <laughs> in place. There was a curfew on the 
um, on the main march. So he had, the speeches had to finish by a certain time, which of course meant, you know, the length of the march meant that most people didn't get to hear the speeches because they were still marching at five o'clock when the, when the curfew was in order. Um, and of course, there is new legislation in the Public Order Act about disrupting what's called national infrastructure, which includes train stations. And so what you've seen is like this kind of start to come into play with the um, sit-ins that the pro-Palestine uh, movement have been engaging in. Obviously, it you know a sit-in in a train station is intended to, in some respects, disrupt the, the train station, or at least that's the way the police will see it. And so you have seen this kind of unequal treatment, despite what Suella Braverman has said. Um, in the future, like I think the Met, this will this the Met will consider this a failure in many ways. I think um, that they didn't they didn't particularly get the the policing right in that disorder happened in a way they didn't want it to happen. Um, there was like kind of scuffles and fights with police around the centre half where the exclusion zone was. And I think um, if the PCS hadn't been working so closely with the Metropolitan Police, things would start to go downhill pretty quickly. Um, but I think for now, this for this round of, of struggle, I think, I mean, it's just hard to tell really. Um, but I, I think we need to be really careful and really on it and be really... Um, kind of together and organized with our kind of legal support structures, which do exist and have been working really well uh, around these protests. Um, because I feel like there's going to be a lot of, a lot more kind of repressive actions in the, in future demonstrations. Yeah, that seems like a fair assumption. Uh, I mean, things are going on that trajectory, regardless, like you mentioned, we have had a bunch of new protest or anti-protest legislation come in regardless. Um, I guess the other thing that perplexes me a little bit, or I remember, you know, when uh, back in, I believe it was 2020, um, during the um, Black Lives Matter protests in central London, when this, there was a kind of a, a buildup that I think parallels um, the one that happened last week in many ways, where there was increasingly a moral panic around statues and national symbols, national iconography in the context of these really large-scale mobilizations in central London by Black Lives Matter campaigners, um, where the press and uh, right-wing politicians kind of mobilized these national symbols and a perceived threat to these national symbols. Um, and we then saw a mobilization of, I believe, about an equivalent kind of scale um, on the part of far-right groups um, I think around, yeah, it would have been, I don't have an exact estimate here, but I think it would also have been somewhere in the region between 1,000 and 2,000 people, right? Um, yeah. But at that time, the organizers of the BLM march chose to call their protests in central London off, um, reasoning that as organizers, they couldn't guarantee the safety of people attending. But that message came out I think the evening before there was a great deal of confusion about who's going, who's not going. And the result was that these far right groups were left to roam central London more or less unopposed until later in the afternoon when people from across London um, traveled into central London to oppose them more actively. But in the meantime, they were in town, they were targeting 
minorities. They were targeting people they perceived as lefties. Um, and it's that didn't happen this time. The organizers went ahead with the march, um, which seems like a better outcome in the sense that it seems that the capacity of this right-wing mobilization to harm people or attack people was significantly hampered by the fact that there were just so many people in town. Um, although I have seen reports online that at the edges of the protest area, particularly just to the south of the river, that there were attacks on individuals um, and threats to individuals um, around town regardless. But that seems like, is that expressive, do you think, of like a, a lesson learned since 2020 that we sort of know we shouldn't cede that ground to them? Um, um, I think it's hard to tell, especially because it was so policed and, you know, the, the PSC route was so far away from the Cenotaph anyway. Uh, like, like, like you said, like a lot of the danger of the day was not on the actual march or during the key times of the day, but it was afterward when people were leaving in small groups, um, were being acoustic on, on trains or in train stations, or they, you know, there was... Uh, you know, far right were in pubs afterwards, drinking and and getting more larry. So, it's it, it there are t- it is two different situations, I think. Um, and, and I think you can't discount the police as well. Like, I'm not sure. I don't even think the BLM organizers were in in contact with the police. Um, um but this time, of course, the the PSC were and, and had extensive talks with them. So, there was. I think they were treated differently by the. Uh, by the cops as well, um, but it's good that you brought up the the statue, statue shaggers, statue defenders deal because I think what we want to get across in this episode is is to discuss a, a movement that was like massive in the 2010s and then has died out and is maybe seeing a little bit of resurgence now and maybe we'll see more kind of opposition of of pro Palestine. Uh, stuff in the future from the, from these networks and these groups, these kind of football lad networks, and there was a banner on the on the far right demonstration which which read, um, "You're not pro pro Palestinian, you're anti British," which I think kind of sums up the the kind of general tenor of these movements and of the day itself. Um, like they're, you know, they're kind of interested in defending Britain as a as a kind of national symbol and the symbols of Britain, so that is a cenotaph, various statues of, of of figures. You know, it wasn't even like someone that famous for the for the statue defenders protest of Edward Colvin, who was a a, a Bristol slave trader in the late late eighteenth century. Um, you know, these are kind of people who you know, if you want to take that guy as a national symbol, fair enough. But obviously, it, it does for a lot of these people. Um, I think specifically they were coming out to defend the statue of Winston Churchill in 2020. It was kind of right. The, that yes. was the flashpoint for them that they were particularly concerned about. But this um, was after Colvin had been. Yes, exactly. It was after the Colston statue. They became convinced that Colston, Colston. <laughs> <laughs> no, I curse on his name regardless. Yes. Um, okay. So I think what we've seen is, is these networks are kind of a different type of far right or a different section of the far right to, to what we've like generally discussed on this show, which is kind of the ethno-nationalist, patriarchal alternative, um, more kind of fa- explicitly fascist movements, which are interested in kind of movement building, cadre building, as it were, more internal, 
not announcing their things publicly, being very secure in their chats. And I think maybe it's good to maybe just discuss that movement a little bit, just so we have a know what we're dealing with. Um, you know, in, in, in recent times, you can trace this, this kind of, I suppose, latent reactionary tendency to the English Defence League, which was the original of these kind of, in the modern times of this kind of football hooligan adjacent football lad type far right patriotic march street marches basically and i think one of the characteristics of these things and we'll talk about tommy robinson a little bit later who is obviously a key figure in all of this um is that they're quite opportunistic so they're often sparked by a, like a big national event um in which which outrages this kind of reactionary tendency within Britain and and drives them out onto the streets, often mobilising over quite commonplace social media platforms, not secure social media platforms. So this demonstration was was organised on a big WhatsApp group and a big Telegram group, which, you know, there was, a, there was more than a thousand people in, in some of these some of these chats. Other organising has been on Facebook too, which is still quite popular with these guys and was like a big mobilising factor for the EDL as well. Um, so just, yeah, I guess talking about this opportunism, if we do a little timeline of this thing, the EDL was founded in, in 2009, 2010, in response to uh, a, like a homecoming parade by a, a British regiment in Luton being protested by Islamist protesters who were disrespectful, who disrespected the, the, the regiment as they went past. Um, later on, we can see the, the, the FLA and the DFLA, which is another man manifestation of this footballer's tendency, um, were in response to some big terror attacks in central London, which killed some people. Um, and there was a kind of a little period in that time where there was an attack and then there was a massive protest and then there was another attack and there was another massive protest. And sorry, just to go back a little bit, DDL actually experienced a resurgence after the murder of, of Lee Rigby. Then there was the uh, Tommy Robinson. There was a Free Tommy movement when Tommy Robinson was jailed for contempt of court, for filming people, um, you know, filming participants in a, or like defendants in a grooming gang trial in Leeds um, and was just essentially jailed for contempt of court. And there was another cycle of protest around that. Um, which at the high point, the one demonstration attracted up to 15,000 people, 15,000 people in in support of Tommy Robinson um, and was opposed by antifascists to varying degrees of success. And then I guess finally, we in 2020, we had the response to the, uh, to the drowning of the statue of Edward Colston uh, in Bristol, not Colvin. Um, which again drew thousands out onto the streets to oppose BLM and to generally, um, you know, defend statues, whatever that means. So I think to put it into that context, these guys are not part of a really necessarily a far right movement in that, in the sense that it sustains itself, is organizing independently, uh, and is uh, kind of got a continuity to it. This is very episodic flashpoints. Um, and we, you know, we in our in our book I, I wrote with um, with Sam, you know, we described Toby Robinson not as a his kind of fans, not as a movement, but more of an audience to be turned out when the opportunity is right. 
And I think in this case, uh, the opportunity was like really, you know, it all came together. You know, you had Sunak saying it's disrespectful. We had the right wing press driving it on. And we had um, Tommy Robinson, uh, the former founder of the EDL, uh, getting back his 300,000 person strong Twitter account and basically making a call out to defend the, to defend the cenotaph um, on on the 11th. Yeah, I think it's it's in the when you lay lay it all out like that, and also counting Braverman's call and the kind of um, I suppose quite heightened tensions around um, Israel's invasion of Gaza as well. That in a sense, I'm struck that fifteen hundred is not such a huge turnout, uh, certainly compared to fifteen thousand coming out to. Um, protest Tommy Robinson's arrest um I and as you put it that that in many ways these mobilizations function more as an audience for Tommy Robinson and similar figures I was also struck I noticed that there is also participation from Turning Point UK um which is also a kind of very media oriented uh outfit that kind of are, are looking for backdrops for their live streams rather than trying to build a movement um but at the same time, this very loose organizational form, and you're saying kind of football football lads, what are the kind of organizational structures that this builds on uh, this kind of mobilization? What, Where do these networks keep themselves when they're not mobilizing for a large event like this? And do you think there's a kind of a, a ceiling on this in the sense that given the the ideological sort of variety, the spectrum of different motivations for people showing up, everything from just wanting a day out to sincerely held right-wing beliefs to a budding career as a grifter, that there's a kind of limit to how sustainable these movements are and how much they can grow? Or is this a tendency that you think we really need to be particularly um, concerned is going to grow and take up a bigger role in public life in the coming years? I mean, I think we do need to be, like, quite concerned about it because these, you know, just what happened on Saturday put a lot of people in danger who were, you know, legitimately expressing their political dissent about government policy. And in that respect, you know, it's it was a kind of threatening atmosphere in which to be pro-Palestinian uh, in central London on that day. And I think a network approach is, is, is really appropriate here, like, a lot of these guys are, are football fans as, as their main identity. And, and you can see like that in like some of the big telegram channels were called things like Football Fans United. Um, you saw a lot of talk about the West Ham lads are, are out today, the Chelsea lads are out today, the Millwall lads are out today. And, and, and indeed, you saw a lot of this kind of coming together of these guys who would obviously be on, up in different stands in, in, in regular times. But you could see like Crystal Palace, West Ham, Chelsea, Millwall, Wimbledon, you know, we're all out together. We're all out to have, to defend our country. And there is, I think you're right. There is a, I think there is a, a limit on this thing. Like, just look at the demographics. This is not like a kind of broad, hospitable um, action for, to be on if you're not like a certain, a, a white man of a certain age and a certain kind of character who's up for a bit of drinking and a bit of an argy-bargy with the police. Um that being said, you know, in 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 the day, like the EDL did turn out loads of people in like 
areas of the country in which the in which the the left didn't have like quite as much of a sustained presence, maybe like a, a trade union council, an SWP branch, and you know or maybe a local anti-racist group if it was a bit later on. But apart from that, you know, there was thousands of people turning up in random ass places like Stockport and being opposed by about forty to fifty people at a time. Um, I think we also can't underestimate how much this is like a kind of fun day out for a lot of these guys. Like they get to drink, they get to do drugs. Uh, they get to be in a big, massive mob of people, which is always fun, obviously. Uh, and they get to rock with the police and maybe have a pop at some lefties. Um, and for a lot of those guys in this demonstration, I just think it doesn't really go beyond that. There's kind of, kind of a latent far right politics involved in which, you know, we love the, we love the King. We love, our boys fighting for us. We love Winston Churchill and we love to have a pint. And it doesn't really, for a lot of these guys, I could I suspect it doesn't really go much beyond that. And we I also, we, we hate the lefty, the lefty work mob. Um, of course, there's, you know, there's some like quite serious crews that also were likely present on the march and who have been there before. The Chelsea Headhunter, Headhunters is quite a notorious neo-Nazi um Football firm, same with like the Millwall Berserkers. They're also an extremely far right um, football firm, and you know various others. And there was definitely a presence of them on the march. There's a there's a there's a screenshot I've got of uh, um, that someone sent me of um, in what from one of these groups in which a guy called Boz says he used to be he was right wing. He marched up and up and down the country with a Northeast infidels, which is a quite a hard, hard, you know, on like basically fascist group, um, and he was on the on the demonstration and was advising people like you know, next time cover your faces, next time use burner phones. This is how a lot of us got away with it in Dover and Liverpool. So there is that presence there, but at the same time, and obviously they do pose a threat to the people on a day, but at the same time, I think there is a limit to to how interested these guys in a, in are in sustaining a a more broad based or a more sustained movement. Yeah, and on that kind of a note, I mean that that all checks out. I mean that there's never, it's never a good idea to be complacent about this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it seems it seems to me like like you're saying that there is limited scope for um, a sustained and kind of tightly organized and continuous presence here. I'm wondering also about Suella Braverman's decision to more or less consciously or actively invite this situation. You know, a politician um, a politician actively using groups like this to, to bolster her position. Uh, you know, I saw one one person on the internet describe it as Suella trying to create a fry corpse. Um, did she jump the shark, so to speak? Here, I mean, was or do you think that there's a there's a real live and present danger that politicians um, in this kind of culture war jockeying position will more actively kind of pursue a, the political possibilities of of agitating and and um, sort of supporting, encouraging movements like this. 
I mean, the fact that she's been sacked shows there is big splits within the within the Conservative Party over this. Um, and there's obviously the, there's a really right wing faction that she's a part of and who is really outraged by her sacking and the and the kind of the resurrection of David Cameron in all his glory. Uh, yeah, that's that bizarre. Genuinely Matt, wild yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, now, and now I guess Lord Cameron. Uh, so he's got that got that honor as well. Um, I think Braverman's setting herself up for. I mean, it's not. It's not. This is not deep level analysis. You know, like she's clearly setting herself up for um, a future bid to be leader post election. I mean, the Tories all and we all think, you know, that they're going to lose to 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 Labour. Um, and so, in the aftermath, when Sunak can't sustain himself after after a, a crushing defeat, she'll be there to pick up the pieces. And she really is um, interested in stoking that, I feel. Uh, just look at the kind of Rwanda policy, for example, which she was such a champion of, and look at like the things she the things she was saying, the characterizations of the pro Palestinians, the hate mob, that, and the kind of equation between the far left and the far right, the accusal of the police of bias towards the far right. And of course, you've got to remember that a lot of these guys absolutely fucking hate the police. Like hooligans, you know, there's a lot of things you can say about them, but they are very, very ACAB. And I think there's a feeling that this is like a base of people or there's like an intention that this is a base of people that can be reliably turned out to vote for them and to tip them over the edge in certain constituencies. However, how, if that's a winning or strategy or not, it's really hard to tell. Um, whether these guys are big voters, you know, it's much more doubtful. But the, I think there is also like a, 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 a more kind of obvious fracturing in the country in the kind of the kind of more concept conventional right wing there's a breaking down between these barriers of right wing far right and fascist um which is a trend we've seen you know go play out over over the last i don't know 10 years or so and it can and this has only been accelerated by things like brexit as well obviously a lot of the all of these guys are, are pro brexit and hit the eu for example mm. so i guess it's to be we need to we need to wait and see for a lot of this stuff, but also as anti-fascists, we need to, you know, keep in mind that that the context in which we're operating and in which we're doing, which we're organising, is changing dramatically, and we need to be prepared for, a, you know, a right-wing government or a right-wing establishment which is totally amenable to this kind of stuff, and totally amenable to pandering and and using that kind of more extreme energy in order to establish and institute really reactionary national and local policy. And on on that note, the the politics of these networks and particularly, I guess, um, the rallying around national symbols um, like Remembrance Day, the poppies, the the memory of um i guess initially world war 1 but in a in a very diffuse way this kind of uh what to call it a kind of like a generalized militarism um or a fascination with the army with military history with the nation with 
sacrifice, um, but all of this in a very diffuse and not very clearly defined way. Like, unlike some of the other far right groups that you've uh, mentioned earlier, with these ethno nationalist groups that spend a lot of time talking about exactly what it is they believe and having falling outs with each other about, you know, the precise their exact position on, you know, racial science or which fascist historical fascist dictatorship had it right. Um, this seems to be a very like broad, diffuse, quite fuzzy set of ideas around and but that nevertheless is really strongly felt or seems to be very strongly felt. Um but also stretchy enough to accommodate a lot of different perspectives. What what's the kind of ideological drivers of this stuff? What what do these groups of people believe in? Yeah, I mean, like what I said, I think it, it's not it's more instinctual than like really thought out, and I think we're going to have to. This is something we'll have to come back to in future episodes. There's a kind of quite broad-based latent reactionary feeling in this country, a sentiment in this country, um, which these guys are, I suppose, one expression of. But you can see it a lot in, you know, kind of protests against migrant hotels, for example, or the kind of hysteria around puppies as a more kind of anodyne example. Like, even in the build-up to this, there was a, you know, there's a claim that, you know, poppy, there's a fear amongst the right-wing press that poppy... Sellers were going to be under attack or going to be confronted by pro-Palestinian supporters, um, and obviously the poppy is like the the key kind of national symbol in, in all of this as well. Um, and it's a I think there's a kind of there's a nostalgic element to a lot of this stuff too. Like we were a great country, we are a great country, we can be great again. Are all kind of mixed together. There's a kind of longing for you know, an imperial past, which is obviously non-existent and Britain is slowly fading, quickly fading from the from like the world stage and world politics, um, which a lot of these guys can't really, they're trying to rationalise and trying to explain in their own heads as well. And it's a kind of, I guess it's a kind of more generalised blob of, of kind of fascist far-right reactionary opinions, which includes things like, the work agenda has gone too far, bring back the death penalty, deport them all, like the lefty work mob won't win, They'll, the lefty work mob will be un, are in, unable to stand up to the threats of, of foreign powers or terrorists or whatever. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all kind of mixed up together. It's, it's, and it's, so that's what it makes, it makes it a bit harder to are a bit more kind of, you need to be a bit more considered in analysing it because a lot of it is driven by affect and like feelings of discontent in, wh- in where the country's going and in, in melancholy about the imperial past, like I said, like rather than this kind of coherent, well thought out ideology, it's just our country's being portrayed, betrayed by these various enemies and we need to stand up to it rather than anything more than that, I think. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think it's definitely some, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think working through all of this, I mean, I'd also just want to bring in the campaigns to defend military impunity in relation to, you know, the recent, um, 
prosecution or lack of prosecution rather of British soldiers um, who were accused or in some cases found to have committed acts of murder in the occupied north of Ireland. Um, and yeah, this kind of this this cult around military impunity, around uh, nationalism, a narrative of national decline and betrayal. But again, in this very diffuse kind of way, I think it's something that is really worth trying to unpack. I think on a kind of personal note, I think it's really tragic, honestly, to see the culture around remembrance of soldiers' deaths in World War One, which if ever there's, you know, there's a case of a war where working class people were driven to massacre each other by their rulers for absolutely no reason, that the kind of memory of that the historic memory of that as a tragedy as as probably one of the the greatest collective traumas that working people in england have undergone in in the 20th century um you know has been completely warped into this really amorphous uh militarism is is a real problem for historical memory i think and 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 how people see themselves in the way that they're treated and seen by their rulers in I'm aware we're sort of running a little low on time, but I did. I am really mystified by one, one more thing around this, which is the, the semi-triumphant sort of return of Tommy Robinson to the public stage with his Twitter account, but also participating, um, as a spokesperson and figurehead for this, uh, so-called counter-protest. Uh, on the day itself, he led a group of people, I understand, to Soho, and then jumped into a cab to escape just as the police arrived to confront that group. So it's kind of classic Tommy Robinson, uh, grift, runaway. Um, why is this guy still persistently popular? Um, he's really consistently, you know, taken people's money, positioned himself as a, you know, as a kind of figurehead for, for this kind of politics. And every single time has let, people down why is he still popular why haven't why haven't you know why haven't these people rejected him i think there's a few things i think he's often he's kind of viewed as a, a personality rather than as a leader um so he's a personality with an audience uh, which kind of implies less responsibilities towards that towards the people who's who's watching him um and so he's kind of valued for his content and for his for his kind of things he puts out on social media and for his videos. Um, another part of it is that he's really good at making himself a martyr, making himself a victim. And so he explained away the taxi ride by saying, yeah, the cops will be out to get me. I just want to spend some time with my family. I haven't seen them in so long. This would I would I couldn't get arrested, etc. And it goes into this narrative that he's been feeding for a very long time. I mean, it particularly came to a came to a kind of a point with the free Tommy stuff, where he was jailed and he was did experience the the British legal system and all its repressive glory, and it, it's put him in this position where he can send out these kind of almost daily emails on his on his email list, of which I am happy to uh, be a proud uh, <laughs> a proud recipient of his emails. You know, just begging people for cash, basically, and just saying. Give me money. Uh, I need this for this thing, for this court date, for suing this person. Obviously, he fails pretty much every time, but 
The point is, he's the one who's under attack. He's the one who's who's been singled out of this group of people. And there is a kind of feeling that he's one of their own as well. Like he did start out as a as a Luton, he's a Luton fan. You know, he he founded the EDL. He's got this history, which you know people like Mark Collette really hate him and, and have a lot of criticism of him, like quite correct and sharp criticisms. But it doesn't get it doesn't sink through, and mainly and, and mainly because the people who've like tried to take his place have have don't have the same level of charisma as him. Like he's just naturally quite a charismatic guy, and you know people like Danny Tomo, Danny Roscoe, they're not they're not on the same level. You know people like Colette are way too overtly fascist for these guys. Like they they still see fascists or like kind of. Nazis in a National Socialist Workers' Party are the the guys that we defeated in World War Two when our boys and Churchill came together and and we defeated the Nazis, and so those guys don't really have the purchase that they want and and neither are they interested in it really either. Um, so it's just at the same time I do find it a mystery too. Like giving those reeling off those reasons to you, like I still think that. You know, a lot of a lot of this kind of culture is, you know, standing up with your, with the lads, with all your, with all your mates, and standing up against the police, standing up against other firms, against the lefty work mob, and he's jumping in a taxi and fleeing the scene. It's not, it's not the best look. And to be and to be honest, in that in that big Telegram group, there were some people speaking against him. Um, but I just think his audience is just so massive; he can absorb that criticism as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, like you're saying, personality rather than a leader is probably the key there, and I guess that kind of gels with a lot of that that kind of more diffuse uh, far right political project of being, you know, also very media focused and kind of having public personalities that are not necessarily organizationally accountable to everybody, but are sort of celebrities instead. In yeah. I'm aware we've gone on a, a bit and yeah. we're going to have to edit this episode down a little bit. Sure. Um, so I think we'll, if you're not only going to be burning thoughts, I think we'll we'll end it there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then expect some of these, more of these episodes, these kind of episodes where we just have a little conversation about a topic um, and expect some more interviews as well. Um, this will be going up on the Patreon first. So if you're hearing it there, hello. And if not, you can always subscribe to the Patreon to get early access um and some there's some other little bits on there too um so yeah thank you very much Solon. i would give you a five star rating as a temporary guest co-host thank you um, thank you so uh, congratulations on that thank you five out of how many five out of five obviously. five out of five amazing okay thank you very much um yeah thank you for having me on and i hope to be back soon as well yeah. and thanks for sharing your insights thank you very much everybody goodbye Take care. Okay, gonna stop that.